This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Historic Souvenirs presents a cyclist's intrepid journeys adapted from his book Pedal Power. Roy Sinclair and his partner Harlico from Japan go cycling the length of Britain in 2006, keen to connect with the local folk living in Cornwall. Sleepless nights by firelight, the stranger in this town, heard by talking Singing songs, I have laid my loneliness down. So long days end with peaceful friends, there is no richer wine. Between New Zealand and Britain, whether in war or peace, our close links are obvious as we cycle through the landscape from which my family comes trying to improve their prospects in life by emigrating. Yet the links with the motherland are persistent. We see it in the cabbage trees, common in Cornwall and Devon. I can't be certain where else in England it might be growing, but it's surely growing in gardens of the Penwith Peninsula by the end of the Second World War. It stands out as starkly different from England's native vegetation, attracting curiosity and even publicity to encourage tourists to visit the region. British Railways posters used to promote St Ives as the English Riviera reached by rail from Penzance on a branch line of the Great Western Railway. Adding the ring of reality to its advertising St Ives as a subtropical destination, their posters portray it as a kind of palm symbolic of the region. Our cycling takes us past properties planted in the iconic palm Cordyline Australis, to cite its scientific name. Its botanical links are to the tree lily family. It is, in fact, not a palm, though still commonly called that. Yet we see in Cornwall fishing villages and on tourists' T-shirts as a motif the species New Zealanders recognise as being the cabbage tree, or tikoka, that Māori translate as footprints in the landscape. Growing naturally best in the cool region of the South Island, cabbage trees are now a striking botanic feature of Britain's southwest landscape. A New Zealander, Mr Pottage, introduces to Cornwall the so-called cabbage tree, reminding wounded World War I servicemen recuperating at Kiwi's Rehabilitation Centre in Torquay of home. The locals like its spiky leaf, the distinctive large, creamy petals flowering in bunches in early summer, claiming the species as their own. Soon it's popular even in home gardens of Devon and Cornwall. 
they won't hear of it originating in New Zealand as an indigenous species. When we see our chosen route in cross-section, showing the rise and fall of the land along the way, it looks like Cornwall and Devon are toughest, their steep rolling landscape. People think Scotland will be the toughest section, but the roads there tend to wind through the hills. Always willing to deviate from the intended path in order to learn or experience something different, both our bikes freewheel off the beaten path to explore a coastal village, Tintagel, which is reputed to be a mythical name of King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table living up to their fame as 5th century chivalrous knights in armour riding in the name of their benevolent warrior king supported by the magician Merlin. The legends idealise human aspirations in the confusion following the Romans' abandonment of Britain. In the upheaval, the people crave a leader they can respect. King Arthur's is the inspiration they seek translated from the Latin penned by British chronicler Geoffrey of Monmouth as History of the Kings of Britain. Its importance as a literary source is its earliest heroic conception of King Arthur about 1139 AD. It's a collection of fireside stories attributed to Geoffrey, who later becomes a Benedictine monk. Many who doubt King Arthur was ever a real person concede a possibility that the king portrayed is rather a great military leader of 500 years before. British writers are brilliant at weaving into history legends, leaving it to others to unravel what's true and what's fiction. The 19th century poet laureate, Alfred, Lord Tennyson, claimed King Arthur and his knights to be the greatest of all poetic subjects on which to dwell, reviving public interest in chivalry as observed in King Arthur's court. Lord Tennyson's insight about insecurities of a people once invaded by Vikings, dominated by despots and influence from France that came with the Norman conquest. Tennyson's twelve poems, Idols of the King, portray the perfect knight who reverenced his conscience as his king. Tourists attracted by legends of King Arthur come prepared to clamber up steep steps to get to the ruins of Tintagel Castle on a headland jutting from the coast. Is this, then, where King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table assembled? guided by rules of chivalry to do good unto all manner of people, regardless of their social rank. Not likely. Tintagel Castle is built by Richard, Earl of Cornwall, in 1236. Its ruins are controlled by a trust on behalf of their owner, the Prince of Wales, Duchy of Cornwall. We can't resist a visit. Like an English Gibraltar, it occupies a fortified isthmus, washed by ocean on three sides, 
We lock our bikes to a tree near a prosperous ice cream vending machine. Taking in the dramatic scenery, we saunter down a path, joining a tourist procession to see the legendary sights of twin waterfalls tumbling into one before spilling into the ocean. There's the entrance to the magician Merlin's cave, where Arthur, born of royal blood but out of wedlock, was protected. It's Merlin who takes Arthur away to be raised by beautiful Queen Igraine, and at the opportune time presents Arthur as the new king to lead the Britons. King Arthur goes on to win many great battles against the invading Saxons, the Germanic people who conquered Britain in the 5th and 6th centuries. Archaeologists unearth by the castle ruins Mediterranean pottery that suggests it was a trading place for luxury goods, a 6th century Celtic stronghold in Cornwall. We wander lazily among the ruins of the castle, mostly low walls, while enjoying fresh Atlantic air. It's a balmy breeze as we retreat towards the village. Turning back to see it from a distance, we see an eerie sea mist fingering its way through the castle's few remaining pinnacles. A camping ground nearby lets us set up our small tent so it's all ready when we return in the dark from patronising the attractive pub offering a tentacal brew to toast King Arthur and his chivalrous knights. Tristram, Galahad, Percival, Lancelot, among others. As the day ends, we walk past a flowering talky palm, Tikoka to New Zealanders. Across an inlet, we see, in the gathering gloom, the eerily deserted ruins of Tintagel Castle, the still silvery threads of the waterfalls. Next day, we pick our way through the strenuous ups and downs of Devon. It's a rolling, lush, green landscape reminiscent of South Otago and Southland. We come upon the Tor Valley. Its river flows 50 miles down from the plateau of Dartmoor. Delightfully in England, much of the beauty of towns and villages hasn't been compromised by modern development. Cars can only just squeeze through paths to access original village structures. It's quaint and not convenient, yet preserves for posterity how the inhabitants fitted in their landscape. Take the village of Atherington, for instance. We pause here. A vantage point reveals the surrounding villages whose devout parishioners for generations worship in the churches we see prominent along the skyline. It seems in all these delightful villages, residences cluster around the Church of England edifices, towers being more dominant than steeples in this part of England. In times of dwindling congregations, I wonder who keeps so tidy these centuries-old stone structures, finding a church but no café to patronise in Atherington. We're about to resume riding in hope of a cup of coffee when I'm accosted by a neatly attired old-timer with a challenging question. Which is the best country to live in, Canada or New Zealand? I reply, I've never been to Canada, but find New Zealand a pleasant place. It turns out 
He's lost faith in the leaders of Britain, that they no longer care about people. They're experts on sex, he says, but turn their backs on God. I cast a glance over the road to the parish church, an impressive building with interior decor going back to the 15th century. A village so small, the latest census numbers, its residents as fewer than 400. This senior citizen may have a point. Seems the liveliest of times here might be the village funerals. pedal on, I ponder if the old gent is justified in his quest to emigrate. He worries how expensive England is about the terrorist attacks in London, but my philosophizing isn't helping on hills. I reach the summit of the rise to find Harlico waiting with grumpy face. We cover only 93 kilometres for the day, but need allow for the scrumptious date loaf I ate till a crunch sent searing pain to my tooth. It eases a little, so our ride can resume. We get as far as the Somerset borough of Taunton. Here the Normans built the castle which, in the aftermath of the Monmouth Rebellion, 1685, is the venue for trials of rebels captured after the defeat of the Duke of Monmouth's supporters. Hundreds are condemned to hang, and others sold into slavery. On this somber note, we turn in after a hard day, battling headwinds, summer heat, and sore posterior. To enter the camping ground, we find ourselves in a, in a farmyard. As peacocks roam the camp, dusk, brings dozens of rabbits bobbing about unoccupied grass. It reminds me of that enjoyable book, Watership Down. in striping distance of the city of Bath. It's Harlico who's the better at sensing direction and map reading. Is it that people from a city of millions develop the need to have their days well planned in advance, 
while we Kiwis rely on the luxury to plan on the hop, or, in our case, on the bike. It occasionally is a source of frustration between us when it doesn't work out. I'm satisfied to follow her lead as she deftly discerns the way out of town on quiet byways. It's the more a shock when RAF fighters fly low over the countryside, their jet noise earth-shaking. God only knows who actually such show of strength and preparedness for any attack is supposed to impress. We reach Glastonbury by mid-morning. Scoth scones topped in jam and cream and enjoy a cup of coffee. We sit on a low fence across the road from old Glastonbury Abbey. Its ruins survive very dramatic changes in the local landscape. History reveals that 2,000 years ago, the sea lapped at the foot of a hill on which the town now stands. As the land built up, its shore receded, so placing Glastonbury several miles inland. A lake also forms. Over time, the hill, called by its Gaelic name Tor, is connected to an island upon which was an 8th century Benedictine Abbey, Britain's oldest Christian sanctuary. In the 15th century, a church is built in the name of warrior saint, St. Michael. Both churches fell into ruin, but legends survive. That the Virgin Mary's uncle, Joseph, was here some time after the crucifixion, carrying the cup that Jesus passed among his disciples at the Last Supper. Also, that her uncle Joseph, walking with a staff, rested upon it while gazing up the hill. That staff, he believed, had been taken from a tree that grew from Christ's crown of thorns. When it came to walking on, Joseph finds his staff has suddenly taken root. Reflecting on this, he interweaves and seals in mud willow branches, forming a simple shelter as a place of worship. From this origin grows a tree. It flowers always at Easter and Christmas. Later the monks build their abbey here, a tradition to add to the tourist trap, taking at least half a day to do justice to a visit. Set in nearly fifteen hectares of typical English parkland, it's all that remains of a powerful enterprise. The medieval monks and their abbots of the 11th century wielded influence far beyond their stone walls. The ruling Normans, knowing these monks possess wealth at the expense of the common people, seem to tolerate the practice of exacting tithes and penance from worshippers. Reconstructing how the abbey must have looked at the peak of its influence in 1539 AD, on the eve of its dissolution, its measurements made it the longest monastic church in the nation, with towers 72 metres high. Social and religious upheaval of the Reformation induces King Henry VIII to close hundreds of monasteries. At the time, Glastonbury Abbey is more wealthy than any except Westminster Abbey in London. It's a dark period in the church, as vandalism, pillage, and murder of enormous magnitude are rife. The monks claim to uncover a tomb in rebuilding the abbey 
in 1191 AD. Digging down, they find a stone slab and leaden cross. Latin on the cross translates as, Here lies buried. The renowned King Arthur, King Arthur in the Isle of Avalon. Deeper down, a rough wooden coffin. In it are bones of a man, apparently killed by a blow to the head. Beside this are smaller bones and golden hair which crumbles to the touch. King Edward II and Queen Eleanor of French descent attend as monks disinter the coffin. According to legend, the monks place the remains in a black marble tomb which is safe in the chancel till the dissolution of the abbey. No one has seen the lead cross since the 18th century. Glastonbury offers a fascinating composite of legend and history. Unravelling one from the other will likely never be proven. But the ruins are real. King Arthur is rumoured to have perished in the course of fighting a final battle against another Briton, Mordred, at the Camel River. His body is said to have reached here by boat, on the Isle of Avalon. The monks say, beside the kings, are the remains of his beautiful Queen Guinevere, his wife, the daughter of a king of Cornwall. As befalls other sanctuaries, Glastonbury Abbey is desecrated to act as a quarry, its stones pilfered to put to use in building new structures. Only the abbot's kitchen survives intact, with clues as to what supposedly the frugal 15th century monks ate. They'd not starve. Indications are their menu offered ample helpings of cooked dishes, beans, eggs or cheese, with fruit or other vegetables, and a pound of bread a day. It's mostly vegetarian. Ale is optional. That reminds me. We're planning to stop at the inland Somerset city of Wells for a break. Beneath another cathedral, at least this one's intact, we spread our lunch out on the pleasant green beside the huge structure. Nearby is a castle moat. By breaking the day to coincide with places of the past, we'll absorb more than if we simply cycle past. But it's the city of Bath we're keen to come to. The afternoon's hot, the hill's steep. Reaching one crest, it's only to find another miles in the distance. Eventually, the road runs down into this beautiful city, featuring Georgian buildings, some wrapped around curved streets. We're looking forward to a roam around the city sites. First, we must find where to stay. An international hostel sign points the way. A grunting mile up an urban climb. Sweat pours out until it's into a rambling building of former manor house with our first experience of a licensed bar in a YHA hostel. We do all the necessary washing and reorganizing that goes with long-distance cycling. It's been a week since we left Land's End, now 479 kilometers behind. The relative luxury of Bath's youth hostel helps revive our will to continue. Together we walk down the hill to explore the city at sea level. 
would-be mariners are messing about with hired, narrow boats on the canals. A trio of old guys moodily stare at their model yachts, becalmed and out of reach. Being Sunday, I cheekily ask why they're not at church. We were, says one, looking sorrowful. And we prayed for wind. And we haven't even been able to break wind, another adds. They all laugh. We spend an hour or so visiting the bath and pagan temple site, a hot spring oasis to the Celts goddess Sulis. Around 65 AD, the Romans built a military road across that sacred site over the objections of the local community. However, the Romans are all for inclusiveness. They make it into a huge spa with its temple dedicated to both their own and the Celts goddesses. Overlooking all this since the 17th century is a frowning tower of Bath Abbey. Under the chandeliers of the pump room, we dutifully line up to sample the life-restoring sulfurous spa water. The shocking hot taste sends us on our way in search of a quiet side-street pub, the old green tree. So radically different we step down to a room of paintings of the fighter aircraft that spared Britain from invasion in the Second World War. They look as if about to dive-bomb our beer mugs. During the night, a thunderstorm wakes me in the small hours. I'm in the hostel men's dormitory. Is that the snores of roommates, or a chainsaw going in the small hours? First light shows damp woodlands outside and rain bouncing from a pavement leading to the bike shed. Harlico and I meet up for breakfast of our usual muesli and yoghurt with bananas washed down with coffee. Others who are cycling in Britain are around us preparing relevant local maps by which to plan and plot progress during the day. Of the two of us, Harlico has her nifty fingers to consistently refold a map with its crease exact, an art I've yet to acquire. Our route ought to take us through the cities of Gloucester and Hereford before skirting northwest into Wales. We're grateful that on these quieter scenic roads, avoided by an army of trucks who make blatantly clear that cyclists aren't welcome, we'd have the legal right to share the road. They'll cut in so close they almost clip us. That's an anxiety we don't want. Did they ever ride a bike out on the road? What a contrast we'll encounter as the day develops. The presence of too much traffic is oppressive. We're damp, are tiring after the morning's exertions, and overdue for lunch. That's when we spot a lone Herefordshire farmhouse in the vicinity of Amistry. More than that, is built on as a conservatory called Watering Hole Cafe. We experience the allure looking down upon trees of Lug Valley. It's the first cafe seen in miles, so despite its rather exclusive appearance, we find ourselves riding up the long drive. Stuck onto the door is a sticker. Cyclists welcome! That helps. It's thrown open by a well-dressed woman before allowing us a chance to say anything. She announces, Come on in, out of the rain, and don't worry about those wet rain jackets. Her smile says it all. 
making such a difference. It's good to get out of the rain. Thanks for listening. Do enjoy next week at the same time another edition adapted from Roy's book Pedal Power about the joys and the downfalls of travelling by bicycle long distance on the trail that leads them from Land's End to John of Greats. Broadcast on Free FM 89.0. Proudly supported by New Zealand On Air. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This Free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.